We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Welcome to All That To Say. On our podcast today, I am so very pumped to be able to introduce my audience to a really outstanding figure who is holding in her hands some amazing potential, promise, and responsibility. Her name is Dr. Q English, and she's given me permission just to go straight to it and call her by Q. Q, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being here today, Jim. Thank you for having us. And when I say Dr. Q English, I could say the Reverend Dr. Q English because she wears a lot of hats. (laughs) She's had a very... Uh, adventure-filled life, it seems to me. And uh, I want to talk to her about what she's doing now. But before we do that, I'd just like to dig a little bit more into who this woman is. First, I've just got to ask you about the name Q. Is that a family name? Well, what, that's just, what's the story you know, my on mom it? used to tease and just... Well, she just used to tease and just call me Susie Q, and uh, my <laughs> name Susie is not in my name at all. But Q Q U E is on my license and my passport and everything. Yes, yes, so yep. normally, what I get when my, particularly my my Spanish friends see me, they say K English, really K, and I'm like, no, it's Q, it's right? Q. So I like it. Um, but I've I've learned to just fit into that uh, mode well, of I, that I, may be in mis- mispronounced. It's <laughs> it's, well. it's just got style. It's got bite. It's got energy. You, I, I'd be carrying that proudly, and you are. And I, I checked yeah. out on LinkedIn, and you know, LinkedIn is that thing where a lot of people are in it, and some are not, and so forth. But when I was just looking you up, I just noticed your LinkedIn profile, and I just have to read what's in your profile, which I just think is a snapshot of a of a woman with big ideas and lots of juice and a lot to do. Here's how it goes. The first thing up, she is a pastor. She's an activist. She's a bridge builder. She's a consultant. She's a coalition builder. She is anti-gang and anti-gun violence. She is for juvenile justice and against sex trafficking. Now, I mean, uh, there may be a limit to what you can put in a LinkedIn profile, but already we've got the world uh, moving in, in your grasp. And I just have to start the very first thing in the lineup is pastor. Now, I'm a pastor. That was uh, my calling. Um, and you are now working for the federal government. I actually dreamed of working for the government. That's where I started. And then I I, I, really? I, I found, yes, I'm from Seattle and I, I dreamed of politics and I actually represented Northwest Seattle in the state house for a brief time when I was a young guy, a long time ago. Wow. Long story short, uh, the ministry and public service seemed to me always to kind of match. And here you are, but your first lead in your intro is pastor. Tell me about that. I mean, uh, you have a calling to be a pastor. Pastor is a word that means shepherd. You're a leader, a shepherd. Tell me about Q the pastor. Oh, Q the pastor. Actually, my husband and I, we pastor in the Bronx, um, a church called Bronx Christian Fellowship. And that word pastor, you know, it goes beyond the pulpit and those that are 
in your congregation, that pastoring seems to, over the years, just taken a shape of its own through becoming that church without walls, right? It's and, and finding yourself pastor for the least of these, those that don't even have a pastor, those that you may pass on the side of the street that don't quite smell like you, that don't quite look like you, that don't quite dress like you. Um, that word pastor for me means a lot. I mean, we have an amazing congregation, love them. All of us are outward facing, you know, even during these times of understanding that church, the purpose of church is not just for the next chandelier or the next color we're going to wear for Mother's Day or a beautifully printed program. But that pastor's heart has to do with embracing the things that God loves and shedding that and sharing that with your congregation and then addressing the things that God hates in a justice kind of way. And so back home in New York, I, they used to always call me the social justice minister or the social justice pastor. I understand what they were saying, but to me, it was just that if it pains the heart of God, then surely it would pain our hearts as well. And then if it pains our hearts, then there's that word compassion, which is empathy and action. It, it requires action. Everything Jesus did um, on the earth when he was moved with compassion, action followed. So it's just, a, that's to me embracing uh, that word pastor. And, you know, all of us have our strengths, but I just feel like um, we cannot be effective as we desire to be, if that pastor doesn't show himself or herself outside of the full world. So as a pastor, I, I, I was more of the uh, pastor that looked at our church as a church without walls and became a pastor of the community, a pastor of those that were in. And there were those that were just like, assigned to the house right and that's good because you'll have those no one everyone doesn't have to be like running the streets right we just have to have the heart of god and serve in the capacity you're you're called to serve in but when you ask me that question that's what past q the pastor was and is that's just uh, extraordinary and your use of the the phrase church without walls really resonated with me because uh, i I've been a pastor most of my life until I've taken my present post leading a group of churches, but it's still a pastoral role in a way. And uh, when I, yeah. I was in my last pastorate, uh, I, I developed that phrase, church without walls, because it was really important for me that my congregation understood the church was not an address. It wasn't a place, it was a people. And, uh, and, mm. and it's value. You know, Jesus called us to be salt and light. And what are those? I mean, salt changes the flavor of everything it touches. And once it touches it, you can't pull it back. You can't make that meat taste like it did before you put the salt on it. Light changes the perspective of everything it touches. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And Jesus said, you're to be salt and light. So there you are, uh, shepherding in the way of Jesus Salt and light, I hear your heart. Thanks for sharing that. But it also tells me that your, your frame, your ambition is framed by your faith, that you're, you're not just here uh, trying to work by yourself. You see yourself as actually working in the economy of God to help redeem and restore and make better a broken world. Is that fair? 
Oh, that is so fair to say. And, you know, I endeavor and I do not do it right all the time, but I, you know, try to keep my ears close to the mouth of God to hear his instruction as far as what I'm called to do in this earth, you know, you know, in, in life, um, Jim, we answer two questions, you know, growing up, you always think about, oh, what is it I'm willing to live for and, and be? But then there's that second question, you know, what are you willing to die for? And I feel like until you've answered that second question, you haven't fully lived. Mm. And so, you know, for me, it's all about how do I, you know, serve humanity to the best of my ability while, you know, being here on earth? What is, where's, where's God? God heart right in this moment? What, what is he's concerned about? And how can I be that instrument of God uh, to address those concerns? How can I use the gifts and abilities he's given me? Um, how can I use my own personal life and my own personal story and my own personal struggles uh, to create a better world? And recognizing that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and how to eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? So it's, you know, just celebrating those small victories because, Outside of that, you know, you can get overwhelmed by all the things that are happening. But if we learn how to celebrate those small victories um, in life and while we keep our ears um, close to God's mouth, that we have, you know, those moments of celebrating and and appreciating, you know, what God has called um, each one of us to do. Absolutely. And and you mentioned the Bronx, and I know a big chunk of your life's been in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, I I was looking up the Bronx, and I'm a New York guy. And I mean, I've never lived in New York, but I loved the city. I, I love the expanse of it and the depth of it and the challenge of it. I, I get a buzz from it. So I, I'm thinking about the Bronx as I'm thinking about you. And, you know, the Bronx, if it were a city by itself, it would be the ninth largest city in the United States. I mean, people don't realize how massive these boroughs in New York City are. And the Bronx has a one and a half million people by the last census. I'm asking you, you pastor a church with your husband in the Bronx. You've had a lot of ministry and impact in the Bronx. You've been named one of the 25 most influential women in the Bronx. Is Bronx, has that always been your home or did you arrive there later in life? What would you say? Thank you for asking that. You know, let me say this is one point. It's a large, large uh, borough, yet it has so many challenges. It's one of those boroughs that has some of the most uh, leads in some of the atrocious, uh, whether it's cardiovascular disease, whether it's one of the poorest congressional districts in the nation. I mean, we have a lot of stats associated with the Bronx that that aren't, you know, pleasant. I was actually born in Manhattan, in Spanish Harlem, uh, in a place called Carver Projects, um, which is, it wasn't so different from the Bronx. You know, uh, the neighborhood was predominantly, you know, it was a mixture of the black and brown community. But um, again, it was called Spanish Harlem. So there was a strong uh, Spanish presence, as it is in the Bronx as well. Um, and, you know, so when I think about, you know, where I was raised and 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 what I'm doing now in the Bronx and the people I'm serving, it it didn't differ too much from my own story Uh, growing up in the projects, growing up uh, with very, very little means and loving just so everyone knows my government cheese and my, my peanut butter, you know, I love the government cheese and peanut butter. You never thought about how poor you were until you realized how poor you were, but um, it was just a, a real challenging time. And so when I think about my pastoring and my movement in the Bronx, I think about my own personal, life story um, right there in Spanish Harlem where, you know, uh, 
you named the drugs, we were, you know, we led in it. You know, my brother pretty much died from um, heroin addiction and um, HIV AIDS. Other two sisters on crack cocaine. My other brother is the one that you passed on the street in New York pushing the shopping cart. Uh, or you may have seen my aunt escape from Ward Island, the Minstel Institute, with just her Dr. Robot coming down First Avenue, you know, or in my own immediate family, seeing the struggles as such. And then us and then my mother and my father, you know, doing what they knew to do uh, because of the stigma that was associated with so much. No one thinking about uh, getting help or getting mental health care because we live by one of the most atrocious statements that any family could live by. And it was what goes on in the house stays in the house. Some things need to come out of the house. And because it didn't come out of the house, we were all subjected to what we call ACEs, adverse childhood events that took place in our life that material that sort of like materialized through substance use disorders and alcoholism and drug addiction, et cetera. And this is immediate family. I'm not talking about my distant cousins. Right. And so and that came as a result of us sticking, hanging out in that realm of what goes on in a house, stays in a house. And that stigma ended up creating really horrific occurrences. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, I believe those were the things that created that pastoring, that created that movement to the Bronx, um, that borough that had so, so many and still has um, so many needs. And so, you know, it's my life story that shaped me to do what I do and to, you know, uh, uh, put my hands in so many of the things that I put my hands in, right? Because I'm a firm believer, you know, what angers you is what you're assigned to solve and what saddens you is what you're assigned to heal. And when you create those two things together, boy, that's like destiny kissing. And and so I try to live my life like that. I really try to focus on being solution oriented. If I find this problem, I'm going to do what it needs to take to help solve it by the help of God. If I'm feeling sad and I know there's a healing stream that's going to flow through me by the power of God to help in that regard. So I'm very intentional on that because I know, I know this is not a third person story. This is not something I read. This was me. This was my household. This was my life. And that's, and I believe God allowed me to walk through so many of those things that you hear about today and you think, oh my God, that was horrific. But at the same time, the, if God can bring me through it and heal me through some of the processes that I've had to go through, then surely he can help me lead others to that same healing fountain and um so there for me bronx it's it's a it's a mission field just like any other third world country mission field bronx is a mission field for me and manhattan the whole city of new york uh became that and so i'm very passionate in those spaces and i you know i, I you know i joke around sometimes i said there were times i would get arrested on martin luther king day you know just because there was an injustice and it was okay but that's how god created me right so and learning how to take what i've gone through and make it a platform and a stepping stone not only to launch me into my next but to help others realize that they can be a next. Well, you just described a very tumultuous, uh, dramatic uh, childhood. And, and while I get, you know, all of us as children, we, we tend to idealize or we accept as normal things that may not be healthy or, you know, we, we navigate through children can be great survivors. But there had to, 
in your description of your upbringing and your neighborhood in Spanish Harlem and now in the Bronx, which is a, a next door neighbor in the Bronx, there had to be something going on in you where you you know some people would would just fall back into the the unhealthy normal. Yeah. Some people are saying, no, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be this way. Somewhere in your life, you made a choice. Uh, I'm not going to continue to allow this to play out. I'm going to try and intersect it and change it. And that has defined your career. But can you remember a moment where, mm-hmm. you, where you were experiencing something or you were looking back in a memory and you thought, no, wait a minute. I'm going to work to fix that. Do you have a memory mm-hmm. like that? Yes, I do. Matter of fact, and I think for me, it was, you know, I remember when a horrific uh, uh, event took place in my home, my house with uh, personally with me walking in through the doors, letting my mother know her grabbing the knife, running downstairs to find the perpetrator, not finding the perpetrator, putting up the knife. We ate dinner at the table. I washed the dishes. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and went to school. Nothing else ever discussed. So let me to the reason why I'm giving you context in that event nothing happens no one's called no doctor no police sit at the dinner table eat in silence i wash the dishes i go to sleep i wake up and go to school in those times during those times i'm processing as a child these event the event and that and so i have to I am forced to draw my own conclusions and sometimes those conclusions are wrapped up in self-blame and then in that self-blame then it becomes a broken record and so what happens is that contributes to me always thinking like a victim so the thing I had to come was always carrying around that victim mentality and so how so I had to understand that that was unhealthy. And then the scripture in Philippians 4, 8 came to me and that sort of became the anchor. It's like this victim mentality, I wasn't going anywhere. I started understanding the difference between a victim mentality and a victor mentality where I can use the opportunities, the things I've gone through as an opportunity for growth and improvement and for healing. And so Philippians 4, 8 was like, you know, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are, it's all of the things that I needed to think about. And then I realized these weren't the things I was thinking about. All of those things that were contributing to me feeling lost and as a victim and my brain, my mind, because of that, became a a, a breeding ground for anything the enemy wanted to share with me. I believe it as truth because I had nothing to funnel it through. And it was that scripture when I read it that day that said, wait a minute, I need to start, start. If you got to starve, you got to starve the things that you want to die and you got to feed the things that you want to grow. And I was feeding the things that needed to die and starving the things that needed to grow. So embracing that, I began to, Jim, just intentional movement on how I thought, mm-hmm. how I reacted. And it changed so much. I began to understand, wait a minute, that's a lie. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know it was a lie before because everything that came in my mind sure. I, I just accepted it as it was until I was able to recognize I need to put what I'm thinking against what God's word says 
And I begin to starve those things that needed to die in my mind and in my life and to feed those things that needed to grow. And that became that change agent for me. And then I began to journal. When I began to write things down and when I did particularly my dissertation, when I was in, um, and, and it, it sort of like showed me my why. Like I knew my why, but journaling and doing the research and writing and having to talk about myself made me realize this is not who God has created you to be. This is not who you are. You need to rise up above this with the help of God. It's a process. No one's perfect. But I realized that he began to teach me how to shut out that type of thinking. Mm -hmm. And what does it really mean to have your mind renewed? Well, there you are. I began to watch my reactions. I began to watch how I was reacting to things, how I was responding to things. What was those triggers in me that was doing that? And I began to do a self-accountability, you know, recognize that it was me, oh, me, oh, me, oh, Lord, standing in the prayer because I was a master at bringing everybody else in the prayer room except me. It's, oh, there's so many things uh, that you just prompted in my mind. I, uh, it's not a secret. My wife stood up once in our church and told her story. She had been sexually assaulted as a student uh, at university and and how that defined so many things for her. And she she found in Job chapter 10, an unlikely place perhaps, a, a word for her heart from the Lord himself, which caused her to develop a phrase, which she still now uses uh, some years on since she's kind of disclosed this story. But she said she used to always ask herself, why me? And then she understood the Lord saying, no, it's not why me, it's use me to help not let this happen again, that kind of thing. And, and I'm hearing, I'm, I'm resonating with some of your uh, testimony because I've heard this in my own house and it's so powerful. And, and it reminds me of something I've seen you quoted as saying, and it has to do with your dissertation, which was on human trafficking, I think. And, and one of your seminal works, which is the establishment and founding of an organization called Not On My Watch, which fights human trafficking. But in that context, you've been quoted as saying, you, you, you can't fight the darkness or, or the darkness can't be defeated. I'm not sure how it starts until you turn the light on. And you just described that. <laughs> I mean, now I'm, that makes so much sense to me now out of your mouth until you turn the light on because a light was turned on for you. And then the darkness began to flee. Yes, yes. You have, yes, exactly. So you're right. I do say that. And I've said that a lot. Like, if you want to dispel the darkness, you got to turn on light. And we have to be that light. We've got to walk in as light. We've got to illuminate through education and through education and awareness, through training. That's that's turning on the light in some of these areas that we want to see in an example of what you're talking about um, in trafficking or whether it's trafficking or domestic violence uh, for our faith leaders and people of faith and our community uh, leaders to be proactive in. But you got to turn the light on. You know, those are areas that are dark and, and they 
and education, awareness and training is what's going to turn the light on. And you got to turn the light on when there's injustices. We can't, you know, keep that light hidden. Um, you know, um, if we if we're if we're going to be silent in those spaces, if we're going to be if we're going to ignore what's really happening in those spaces, then how can we call, have other people be proactive in these spaces in addressing these issues that are that are that are killing our children, that are, you know, killing our uh, and our women particularly. And so that turn on the light is, is for me, like been one of my anchor statements, you know, that if you want to do anything uh, against injustices that we're seeing in our nation and in, in your community or in your neighborhood, you got to turn on the light. And that light comes in a lot of different forms. Number one, as God's love, that's light right there walking in the room. They need to know that, you know, you hear that saying that, you know, it's, it doesn't matter how much you tell a person you care until you show a person you care. Right. So coming not just just with the word, but coming to feed their bellies, coming resources, right? So they see that as part of light. And then the light again, uh, coming in with um, education and training and awareness against a lot of the atrocities that we're facing. And it's not just in trafficking. It's not just in domestic violence. It's in maternal mortality, severe morbidity. It's in youth mental health. It's in suicidal, suicidal ideations. It's in suicide. It's in substance use disorders. It's in the increase in opioid addiction. It is so much that we're tackling. And so how do we turn on the light? in those spaces to give humanity opportunity to heal. If you can't see the problem, you can't fix the problem. And if you can't see, you can't find a way out of it either. And all of that has to do with light and, and the light of the scripture that was turned on in you one day, just somehow. And then as you described, uh, the light of God's love expressed to you. I mean, I'm sure that you could write a book and you should be writing a book about how your, <laughs> your, your own memoir about just how that great theme of, of light, I would call it even heaven's light, has brought life to you. And, I then, love that. and then that's bringing life to others. Let me drill down though, just start out with this knot on my watch, because you have developed a skill set a, a reputation, a, a resume of bridge building, of being an activist, but not doing it just by yourself on the corner. You understand the power of group, of community, tackling a challenge. And not on my watch uh, seems to me to have been a kind of uh, progenitor of some of the other things you've been able to establish in life as, as you helped help the city of New York and communities of color and particular places in the city, for instance, understand the dread scourge of human trafficking and sex trafficking in a way that many people have no comprehension, how deep and wide and desperate that is. And you you help bring turn the light onto the subject in New York and then bring together people of faith and goodwill in New York. I mean, I read once uh, over 300 churches in the city rallying around this cause for the city of New York, of course, Human trafficking is a global phenomenon, but in the city of New York itself, which is larger than some countries, it it, it had just so much awful impact. And and so Not On My Watch has helped organize, helped network, helped turn on the light. Tell me about Not On My Watch and and how it works and and give us some good advice for no matter where we live. What do we do with this trouble? That is so good. Again, my motivation is was rooted and is rooted when it came to trafficking. And if it pains God's heart, it should pain mine. And if it pains mine, then what do I do? 
And so the action steps, you know, I started thinking about, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? You hear that all the time. So what is it that you, what is it that you, I have to say, you know, what is it, how do I become strategic in this place? How do I become strategic in achieving the outcomes that's desired? Obviously, number one is to reduce um, and really to eliminate um, trafficking um, altogether. In the city of New York, the idea that the Lord dropped in my heart was, and it came to me, it says, um, well, we already have an office of domestic violence, and this would be great for every city to think about doing if they can. But I said, we already had an office of combat domestic violence, but where is there an office to combat human trafficking? Why is it in an afterthought or a subset of of uh, uh, of the of the focus of the administration, I said, look at what's happening. Look at what's happening with our children on a day to day basis, and plus, it's affecting majority of the black and brown community. And so, it came to me. Okay, the outcome. Start with an outcome. Start with my end goal. And I'm always thinking that way. I'm always thinking the end, and that I may have to negotiate to get to something that we can settle on as far as this was a fair negotiation. But how am I going to get to that goal? How am I going to get to a place where we're going to address trafficking more intentionally in an effort to help reduce the numbers and to help, and, or, and also not just reducing the numbers, but getting help for those that are the survivors on the ground? Mm-hmm. So I'm a coalition builder. So I, you know, my mind is I'm not a sole expert on this. There are experts everywhere. And the problem is people operate in silos. You're not going to get anything done in a silo. You've got to learn the power of, of, of coalition, of organizing the many to achieve what you need to achieve because they will pay attention to the who you have at the table. So it was important not only to uh, to have the right people at the table, but to have people that have had tenure in this space, to have people that already have an ear of who we need to influence, them being influencers themselves, bringing them all together with all of our differences, our differences in faith, bringing the survivors to the table and writing a guide, writing a paper, why we need to have an office. And once that was presented, I formed what was called Traffic Free NYC. All of the stakeholders and the agencies in the, in the mayor's office, people stop and say, well, how did you get this done? I was like, it's not about that. Who, right? It's about the fact that it needs to get done. And, the, and obviously you had challenges along the way because, you know, everybody wants to be in that space, but I want to encourage people that want to do anything of impact, create or become a part of a coalition, build the coalition, have an action plan, not just a march. Marches expiring after three months, right? We forget about the march and the marches. You got to have a plan. So marching is fine, but you got to have a plan. And for me, it's always about planning. Fail to plan, plan to fail. And so I'm not going to just come in a room with the problem. I'm going to also offer solutions. But what you don't realize is this wasn't Q English's solutions. This was as a result of me talking to a whole group of people to agree on the solution. And so when we launched Traffic Free NYC, it was a it was a a, a coalition of agencies and and of government agencies and external agencies and survivors that identify the top things that we're facing in the city, then it was the top three and what did we need to tackle first, second, and third, made a presentation and the mayor actually had an office dedicated 
to combat gender and domestic violence, which was inclusive of a million dollar budget just for um, trafficking. There are steps it's gonna take. You gotta be patient, but you gotta think beyond your own self. You gotta think outside of your own silo and you gotta include other people's voices. Even voices that you may not have gelled with in the past, they're a key voice. It's not about personalities, it's about the win. And what does the win look like? And that's what you have to work towards. Even if you have to humble yourself along the way to the win, you gotta do what it takes because at the end of the day, it's not about Q, it's about the people that God has called us to serve. And so through Not On My Watch, our organization is survivor-led, predominantly people of color that combat human traffic and domestic violence through training, through advocacy, through community, and through policies. We've had wins in the city, in the state, and the federal level, mobilizing hundreds of people to knock on the doors of the assembly men and, and of the uh, senators, et cetera. Why were they empowered to do that? because they understood the problem. Education, awareness, advocacy. Teach them, educate, you know, educate them and train them, but teach them also what advocacy looks like on the ground. And so being able to do that in all three city, state and federal and see some major wins, is sort of been like the, the uh, foundation for Not On My Watch. And then understanding that we can't do this without the church. The first thing I did was created a faith-based coalition against domestic violence and human trafficking. And we went everywhere. I, I called the United Nations. Oh, can you uh, host us for a meeting? You know, because people, you know, Number one, they have some intel, but number two, you got to know your audience and who you're bringing together. So that appealed to the faith leaders, United Nations, right? So you got to be strategic in that, even though at the end of the day, by the time they're educated at the United Nations, I'm now going to engage you as a house of worship. And so that engagement was very important and their safe havens, but safe haven doesn't mean that they have the clinical background and the wherewithal, the psychological, they just have the resources to know where to point people to, know the signs, know the red flags, know how to be sensitive in language behind the pulpit, um, knowing about the touch, the no touch, the communication and when not to be a secondary pimp through your uh, thinking that we have the solution to their problem, understanding that they've already been controlled, so we don't keep that control going, right? So we don't tell them what to do, we include them in their healing process. So it's a, it, was a, it was a wonderful journey um, in that training. And um, right now we're really focused as an organization um, that I'm no longer an executive director of, but is thriving on um, youth, the youth part, the prevention side. So we're really doing a lot of work there. But that's how you create impact and long-lasting change, um, particularly with the powers that be that have the wherewithal to fund what's needed um, in your respective city. I mean, what, what you've described, and you've talked about a lot of really healthy process building blocks, but you described a cause and an identification mm -hmm. of, a, of a need and, and understanding that alone you're not going to be able to fix it and you have to listen and engage and build out and so on, the coalition you've described. And, yeah. and ultimately oh, yeah. the outcome is, for a person who doesn't know this backstory, uh, what happened consequent, and I will say to your leadership, though of course there was a huge team behind you, uh, the city of New York 
redesigned its own systems and created an office that moved this idea of human trafficking and and combating it from the shadows, from the subset, from the footnote, and moved it front and center. So it became a priority in seven-figure budgets. I mean, it's a huge win. And and I'm sure, you know, it's always going to be a problem as long as humanity, broken as it is, walks around this world. There are going to be people who take advantage of others. But I have to believe that New York City is better. And there are young people who are saved because of this work already, even though there's more to be done. Yes. And what interests me, though, uh, particularly is in, in your engagement with the faith-based community and talking about light and you have to turn the light on, did you find any difficulty getting people in faith communities, in churches, to want to even hear or learn about the dark side of humanity and trafficking? Was that ever an issue or did people just say, oh, tell me more? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, you know, particularly, you know, um, and, and see, let me just say, like, there's the leaders that may not, you know, they're institutionalized and they know they, they come to just, you know, do their sermon and they go home. And so really it's about identifying who's in your congregation that may really have the heart and the passion for it. But yeah, there was definitely pushback, pushback by way of, it not being a priority, you know, for them. And, and I really did come from more of a non-judgmental space after a while. It was just more of like, hmm, that's interesting. Even though I'm sharing how horrific it is, they can't seem to not moved make by time. Yeah. You know, they're not moved by it. And so, you know, there were several, you know, entities, um, organizations like that and faith leaders like that. And then there were those that were moved by it, but just never acted on it, right? They were like, oh, I can't believe, what, what, you know, Reverend Hughes, like, but never really acted on it. It was that in the moment, right? In the moment. And then their minds are on next, right? So, and 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 so, yes, the answer is absolutely yes. And particularly when people felt like it wasn't in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's um, not my problem. And which is... False. It's not my problem. Right. And so and which is false thinking, because there is no one neighborhood, you know, for trafficking. Right. Um, I do think that, you know, what was really, really hurting my heart was the um, idea of the thought of even legalizing prostitution, Um, you know, uh, and even though. they try to keep it separate. You increase prostitution, you're going to increase uh, trafficking. If you legalize the product or service, then it will become even more uh, in demand. I mean, the argument is often that the demand will wane, but no, if if uh, there's demand for it and it's legal, then there'll be more demand to get people in the stream. You know, as you're you're talking about neighborhood, so uh, Seattle is my home originally. Right now I'm in the Indianapolis metro. And Indianapolis, in the middle of the country, you know, it's, you know, people would see it out. If you don't live here, you'd imagine it in a certain way about its cultural uh, norms and the safety of it and all that. But there are some ministries in, in my metro, and I've been a part of those. I've gone into where you go after 1 a.m., and you simply go underneath underpasses of interstate highways in Indianapolis, Indiana. And what we have are whole communities of people who live under underpasses, and many of them are young, t- 
teenage girls mostly who are on the run away from their bad dad in St. Louis or they are they've run away from uh, you know an abusive scenario in Kokomo or in Chicago or you know and Indianapolis is a place where interstate highways converge and so this becomes a transit place and what I'm just I'm illustrating your point people think well that's not in my town or it's not near me I'm talking right. about Indianapolis, Indiana on I-70 or I-65 or I-69. You go under the underpasses at night and you'll see the vulnerable population where someone's cold and someone comes by and says, I'll help you stay warm. And then they're gone. Mm. And to your point, mm. uh, it is an issue. It's a real issue. And uh, it's something that uh, our our church, the church I lead, has been tackling for the last few years, and I just want to thank you for your work and your That's so great your investment in it. And 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 honestly, Q, we're just talking about one slice of your life, but this not on my watch. I think because of its success and the and the and the markers you've already achieved has opened up doors for other things. So I, I have to ask you about one other thing I've read about that comes up with your name, and it's the People's Police Academy. It just seems like uh, oh, a fascinating, yeah. a fascinating another tackle of a, an issue in our communities. Tell me about the People's Police Com- uh, Academy and what, what gave that birth and what does it do? Yeah, I'm going to go back. The paint got hard and pains me too. So what was painting, I felt God's heart at the time was the, you know, the senseless shootings in our community. And it wasn't all police on youth and it wasn't, it was youth on youth and it was black on black. Um, um, But the senseless killings and then the racial profiling and, you know, all the different things that were going on, you know, you kind of think about how do you build the bridge, right? Because we got to coexist, right? How do you build the bridge and not burn something that can cause us to increase the incarceration rate of our uh, black and brown? And how do we get the, the police to be sensitive to our community? And how do we get the community to see the police differently? And, and not all police are bad. And um, and so I would host the um, commissioner. He would come to my house of worship and, and he would, uh, and at the time he would bring his whole top brass everybody would laugh and says oh he has nobody down at one police class because they're all at Reverend Q's church um, so he it was like 11 or 12 of them they would come because at the time I had a you know I was running the uh, you know the Bronx clergy round table and the Bronx clergy criminal justice round table we were all meet so there'd be hundreds of you know people in the audience community and faith and concerned about community um, I remember one time we were leading in um, gun violence in my community and I was like, what? You got to be kidding. So we, we ended up being proactive to help reduce that as well. But let me tell you about the People Police Academy. So I was sitting in my office one day and see, they always advocate. We would like you to come through the um, Citizen Police Academy where you can understand what it is. You know, we do on a day to day basis why we do it, how we do it and why we need your support. We need you to see this through our lens. And I thought about it one day sitting in the office. I said, that's real interesting. I said, well, we need a people's police academy that officers can go through so they can see it, the community through our lens. Places that you're, you're not, you didn't, um, but were raised in, but communities that have been stigmatized, places that you're coming in already prejudging. I said, how do we 
disarm both. How do we turn the light on? And build relationship. And the way to do that was to do that. So everybody said, they're not going to go for it. They're not going to go for it. And for me, I'm a disruptor. I'm a disruptor by nature. I don't even, if God says it, I, then my headspace is like, oh, then you're not walking with me. That's what that means. <laughs> so I went into that place and everybody was yelling. There's no way he's going to go for it. And he went up and did his pitch and I did mine. And he said, hmm, let's talk about that. And long and short of it is, we did it. Took about a year and a half. A lot of this. Sometimes I had to find where's your collar. <laughs> so like I'm about to, I had my, my hair raising up in these meetings, and I was like, Lord help me, Lord help me, and uh, and and just being able. And what the power of that is, Jim, is that we have to be able. You can't reconcile until you're able to see things through one another's lens. If I sit at the table and all I see is what's through my lens, I'm not there for reconciliation. I'm not there for resolution. I'm not there to build a bridge. I'm not there to solve the problem. I'm there to state my claim, to state my case, and for you to come on my side and see it from my... But if we come to the table together, and I'm going to try to look, even though I'm ah, screaming on the inside at times, I'm going to be intentional because the most effective means of communication is our ability to listen. And listening, I'm going to see it through your lens. I need you to see it through my lens so we can see what does that work? Where's that common place where we can work together? We're not going to see eye to eye on, on everything, and that's okay. But where can we and how can we build? So as a result of that, we had, um, he gave me 50 officers uh, the New York, the president of the New York Public Library came and he gave us his space. We had three days of understanding uh, about race, um, gang violence. I had an ex-gang member there. Um, we had the uh, historian on criminal justice there from John Jay College and the gang, per the ex-gang member was arrested there. It was his first arrest like many, many years ago in that district. So the old guys are like, don't we know him? <laughs> and he's now a prolific speaker going around the world talking about uh, uh, gang violence. And so, but them hearing it and understanding it. And then we had a taste of the, of the borough. For the first time, many of the officers says, I've never had Jamaican food. I've never had this. So we had a taste of the borough. So we really, like we sat down, we broke bread together. We went through the community together. They heard from what I labeled community historians. They heard from, you know, what are the cultural nuances and dynamics that's, you know, here in our community that you may not know. And then we engaged them with the youth. They ended up doing tournaments together till they recognized one another. Hey, didn't we play basketball together? And da, 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 da. So all of those things were fruit of the People's Police Academy, which is now I'm so excited. I'm not there any longer, but it has taken wings on its own with my co-founder. Um, and now it's expanding beyond. I think they like got a half a million dollar grant spanning beyond the um, uh, the police force. Now they're in the probation, anything law enforcement to help bridge the the to help build the bridge between community and law enforcement enforcement destigmatizing and helping to transform their thinking about one of the one and the other and how do we work together to improve uh, so outcomes I mean, particularly I mean you just described your whole gift set of coalition building <laughs> on a different front line helping to bridge yeah. groups together for a common good outcome and yeah. and you say you know you're so excited about it but you're not there anymore well 
the reason, one reason you're not there anymore is because now you've got another job. And that's what brings us really to the, the meat of and welcoming you to all that to say is that you have now uh, become the director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships for the federal government's Department of Human and Health Services, HHS, which is this huge, uh, I I want to say monster, but I mean like 26 or 27 agencies under this umbrella of HHS. And you have been called up, and I have no doubt because of the success you've known in New York City, doing things like this in building partnerships to help lead an office whose ambition is to engage faith-based communities, neighborhoods, in partnership uh, with the federal government and other government programs and initiatives to see what can be done to help things get better. I mean, it's a huge portfolio. How long have you been sitting in that chair? Months. It's like six months today. Six months. All right. And are, is it feeling six like months. feeling like home? Or are you feeling like you're drinking out of a fire hose? <laughs> I don't know quite know how to say that statement. Well, um, but I tell you this, it's like uh, you know, I thought I was um, you know, a multitasker, but this is multitasking <laughs> on steroids. I tell you that much. Well, and sometimes you want to put the period there, and it's just a comma. You're just hanging out in comma land, you know, to be continued, dot dot dot, you know? Well, uh, yeah. I, I totally get that. And 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 the expanse of of challenges in our society. I think most of us just could not comprehend them if we all sat down and looked at it once. I mean, it'd be overwhelming when there's a challenge here and there's a problem there and we think, oh, we want to just retreat to our backyard or our back porch and leave it alone. But you're now sitting where you can't escape the reality of all of those things because it comes down to uh, your office often. And I I checked you out on Twitter. You've got a a Twitter feed going on. And in that Twitter feed... uh, just your your posting is just a wild panorama, a cinerama of, of the world around us. Because in just the last few days, I saw you tweet about Men's Health Month and, and Week and, and that heart disease is, is the leading killer of men in this country. And so you have a tweet about that and, and you're, you're building a bridge so people can learn more about that. I'm a guy and uh, yeah, my father died of heart disease. I get it. I'm thinking about myself because when you get as old as I am, you, you got to really think about this. I'm just saying, there you you're are. Not old, yeah, Jim. well, don't, don't ask any questions. <laughs> so, so. But I'm just saying, heart disease, men's health, that's a part of the portfolio. And then you've got another thing about maternal mobility and help. There's a whole feature. You did a string of tweets about some programming about uh, moms and and so on and so forth. And then then you were down at the Church of God in Christ women's meeting talking about the crisis with infant formula. And I mean, the list of Um. things goes on and on. Just your Twitter feed gives a glimpse of one, the brokenness of our world, because all of those things are are reactions to a, a place that needs attention, and yet at the same time, they're evidence of the hope of this world, because there are things that can be done. Pull something out of your portfolio today. What's on your heart in your job today that you think the world needs to hear about and pay attention to and, and get together about? What would you say to our churches? Here's something to think about what you can do. 2021, 
youth mental health was declared a national emergency. The United States Emergency Department showed, reported an uptick of 51% of youth visiting our emergency rooms with suicidal attempts, suicidal ideations. Adolescents average age 12 to 17 for girls and up 4% for boys at the same time in 2019. We've heard of the tragedy in Texas, the tragedy in Buffalo, the tragedies that are occurring as a result of children who have lost, particularly black and brown children, loved ones to COVID, their primary caregivers or their parents, the increase in mental health needs as it relates to loneliness, isolation, and as I mentioned, suicide attempts. If there's ever a time for us as people of faith to stand with our children in this time, it's now. I'm not gonna only say that about our children, but I also wanna say something about us as leaders. One of the things that we're seeing an increase in is the need for mental health care for our leaders. Because it, the children and the adults alike, it's been reported that around our nation, people are running to the houses of God for help. And we're not always, we are not equipped to be the clinician, but yet we're overwhelmed because we've gone from one crisis to the next, unplanned, therefore unprepared, reactive versus and proactive. To that end, our leaders are hurting around our nation. And I have been engaged in call after call after call. So what's happening in essence is we're leading while bleeding because we ourselves haven't had the time to just stop our own bleeding because we're fixing everyone else's or trying to fix everyone else's. Houses of worship, I would encourage. There are several things that you can do just to become better equipped. You don't have to become a clinician. Just understand what youth mental health is and how it relates to spirituality and in finding a course or taking youth mental health first aid as a first step in understanding what's going on in their headspace. I wanna encourage us to be sensitive to what we may seem as behavior problem or perhaps it's really tied to all of the calamities that we are facing in this world. So I'm here encouraging you as a faith leader to get your own help or faith, people of faith to get our own help, but also to see what more we can do and helping our youth, whether that is opening our doors to get our congregation certified in youth mental health, whether it is you yourself becoming certified through a youth mental health course, you yourself as a faith leader, but more importantly, finding those healing circles that are just set aside for faith leaders where the congregation can't come where you can be honest to talk about your loneliness and your anxiety of your times of feeling depleted, running on E, feeling like you're in a wax museum when I ask you how you're doing, you said, I'm fine and highly favored when inside you feel like you're crumbling. Get help. 
we need you around for the long haul. Haul, you know, and super Superman cave it sometimes gets holes in it. And we just got to retreat and it's okay to retreat. It's okay to have those moments of transparency. Uh, like I just need to shut it down for a minute. And even if you feel like you can't, make sure you're on the side that you have that time of where you're getting your own mental health taken care of. I want us to be sensitive to our youth in this age because we've judged them about their pants being down, not thinking about how we can teach them how to raise their, pull their minds up. We're so, you know, talking about how to pull their pants up. Be sensitive, understand that they are going through so much. And what's really hurting is that they're silent in a lot of spaces. Host a youth panel in your own house of worship. Have them talk, have them lead the conversation. Think about ways to engage them more and how to become a better listener to them. And then the last thing I wanna leave with you as we think about this mental health that is affecting so many of us, affecting the entire world in one way or another, whether you're the mental health caregiver or whether you're the pastor, whether you're the leader, whether you're the one that shows up um, at the hospitals, whether you're the funeral director that's burying all those children in Texas, burying all those families in Buffalo. Think about ways you yourself can get help. You can reach out to our office and we can connect you to needed services here at the Partnership Center. That is what we do. And the last thing I want us to pay attention to is maternal mortality. And maternal mortality has to do with maternal death. The United States has one of the highest maternal mortality rate than any developed nation in the world, the United States. Black women are three to four times, has a three to four times higher maternal mortality rate than white women. There's a lot of work to be done in this space. I want you to think about how can you provide support in your house of worship, support for pregnant individuals so they can go full term. The most of the mortality that we're seeing happens after the baby is born. That's when the mamas are dying. New York is nine to 12 times higher than our national rate. The number one cause of death in those women, mental illness. What houses of worship can do in this space? How do I set up a support ministry in my house of worship for pregnant individuals? How do I become educated and, and have my health ministry expand in that space? How do I think about doula care, which is a non-clinical care for um, expectant mothers. How do I how do I get my members certified as doulas? That's what I'm doing right now in my national tour. How do I how do I uh, include it in bulletins? How do I take the the this uh, uh, help guide that the Partnership Center is producing and use it in my house of worship to provide support for pregnant individuals? They come to us for everything else: COVID, COVID testing. We've been there for food. We've been there for clothing. Let's think about how we can be there for mental health and for maternal health as all. Wow. Thank you. you no, thank you. You've, you've identified three big buckets, all having to do with uh, mental health, and I would maybe expand that emotional health, and, and youth mental health. Yes. And you talked about youth mental health, yes. uh, first aid, uh, as, as if there's a, a, a licensing and, and, and actually certification of a kind that I'm yes. hearing you say is available to ordinary people if they want to put their pen to the paper and, and work it, they can get that certification. They can develop some helping skills for their young people and in our communities. And then the, the health of, 
emotions and mental state of our leaders and in churches who are bearing a burden, caring for a community, and they have to keep their heads up, and yet it's so crushing. And uh, I understand some of that having been a pastor myself, and I know that you have too, but I mean, no. I'm so thankful for you to acknowledge that and, and to speak to our, a larger audience who may not be clergy or leading in churches, but if you know faith leaders, help provide for them or be conscious of uh, they need a break and how do we help provide fresh air for them, so to speak. And then you talked about this issue, which is rarely discussed, it seems to me, about maternal mortality. And by that, I think you mean uh, a woman's death in the pregnancy or after she delivers a child, that there's a window there of, of great danger and vulnerability. And how do we come alongside? And I have to say, wow, I can't believe I connected with you again on this uh, about doula. My wife has participated and been a doula because we have a local hospital here that has enlisted women from the church to walk alongside pregnant women, especially if they don't have you know, they may not have a mom or they don't have a figure in their lives to help them know what to expect and what to do. And so uh, a patient coming to the hospital, an obstetrics patient can choose, I'd like to have a doula. And so someone like my wife comes along and walks them from the beginning all the way through and then six weeks after the birth uh, as a as a doula. I'm, your concept of doula may be more diff- more expansive or less so than that, but I'm no, just saying... No, no. Yeah. I have been I've been a witness. My wife has been all into that. She uh you know, she wants to tell me about childbirth. I'm not so interested, but I get I get that it's an important thing <laughs> for her to be alongside. That all said, you've identified some really important uh things that might not come to mind otherwise. And I'm hearing you say also that the department, the partnership center, which is what it's called, your office, which helps represent all of these uh, federal programs and these many agencies, they are here. You are here. Your team is here to take that call, to get that email, to figure out some bridge into your local space where you can get answers. And if somebody wanted to find you or your office, where where's their best contact? Email is partnerships at hhs.gov. Partnerships at hhs.gov hs.gov um and that is really the best way um, that's the portal that's the front door that's the portal that's the front line um to reaching um us and i can also um jim provide um i can provide a telephone number 202-738-2204 that's the telephone number they can use, 202-738-2204, they can use. And I just want to say one more thing about the maternal mortality piece, of which I think is very important. Today, we have uh, what's called Medicaid and CHIP coverage from 1 to 60 days. After 60 days, parents that are on Medicaid CHIP, they are no longer covered. So what we've done is created something, an opportunity for states to expand the coverage after a year, up to a year because we recognize that these women are dying after the 60 days, the majority of them rather. And so what we've done is given the states an option to expand it. Well, we can't advocate to make sure your state does because all states have not expanded it for one reason or another. 
Um, and so while we can't advocate for like knock on your governor's door, I just wanted to give you that information to make sure your state signs up for that extended postpartum coverage. And all of these issues, I mean, this is just, again, a small piece of the pie, but so important for the person whose life hangs in the balance. All of these are issues you believe that the faith community should be stepping into. That, that this is a time in our country where our churches, our people of faith need to step up and step out into the mix. And they can't solve every problem, but there's something that all of us can do. Yes. And yes. I think the Reverend Dr. Q English is living that out. She's not just uh, talking the talk. She is walking the talk. And we are so glad to have you Thank with you. us on all that to say today. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. And God bless you and all that you're doing in this space. And same all right. All that you can say. Same right back <laughs> at you. I really, really enjoyed our time together. Really enjoyed our time together. Thank I'll you. Say same back at you. And, and so our audience knows you're in Washington, D.C. now. That's where you are working from. But I... Yes. Thank you for being there, but pray that you'll also find your way back someday to the Big Apple and help keep making that place better. It's all good. Thank you, Jim. All right. Thank God, you. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.